Welcome to the Institute of Catholic Culture, a nonprofit Catholic organization dedicated to the re-evangelization of our society through educational and cultural programs offered to the public at no charge. This and other presentations, hundreds of hours of audio, are available for free on our website, www.instituteofcatholicculture.org. There you can listen to or download educational programs related to all aspects of our divine faith, and you can review our schedule of upcoming events. We hope you can join us in person. Please, would you join me in welcoming for the very first time Dr. John Love. We're going to begin tonight uh, with the same prayer that Augustine uses to begin the Confessions. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Can any praise be worthy of the Lord's majesty? How magnificent his strength! How inscrutable his wisdom! Man is one of your creatures, Lord, and his instinct is to praise you. He bears about him the mark of death, the sign of his own sin, to remind him that you thwart the proud. But still, since he is part of your creation, he wishes to praise you. The thought of you stirs him so deeply that he cannot be content unless he praises you, because you made us for yourself, and our hearts find no peace until they rest in you. Lord, we ask, let Augustine's prayer be our own, and may we find peace and joy in you. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we have two evenings, two hours to talk about Augustine's Confessions. And in that time, we're only going to be able to scratch the surface, really, of this incredible monument of Western civilization and of uh, Christian tradition uh, and Catholic tradition. You have two handouts, just to orient you. These are sort of big picture handouts in a certain way. Um, the one we were just looking at, A Restless Heart, The Confessions of Augustine, this is sort of an outline of what I want to do, especially that first page, uh, what I would like to accomplish, uh, the, the major themes I would like to address and notice and point out as we look through the confessions. Um, on the back side of that sheet, there are some quotations that we'll use, uh, and then also uh, some ideas about Christian discipleship. Uh, we're going to talk about the confessions um, in terms of Augustine's own conversion process and the ways in which he helps us understand what the conversion process looks like for Christians and maybe especially for Catholics, um, the different aspects of that and the different implications, the different demands that Christianity puts on us, that our Christian uh, life puts on us, that relationship with Christ puts on us. Um, and my hope is that we can reach back 1,600 plus years to this text uh, that was written in a very different time uh, and find valuable resources, inspiring texts, uh, beautiful prayers, um, all different kinds of resources, inspiration to help us today in the 21st century as we try to engage the new evangelization for ourselves and for others. The other handout, again, is two-sided and is an outline of the confessions which I put together. Uh, this is to help us get um, a sense of the flow of the text, the different things that Augustine is doing in the different uh, parts of the text, um, and the, the, 
numbers on this page reflect Augustine's own divisions of the work. So he broke the confessions into different books, 13 different books, and we're following that. And then the numbers that I have there are the, the section numbers that Augustine put into the text as well. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that, especially um, because it can be difficult to find exactly where you're trying to point uh, in different editions of the confessions or something like that. So we'll talk a little bit about that. Um, tonight, we're going to take a little bit of time to do some introduction. First of Augustine, uh, the man who has the restless heart, um, and then of the confessions, and then we will begin to look at the text together and discover some of these themes uh, that I've identified as well tonight. Next week, we'll pick up where we left off, working through the text, trying to discover the riches of this classic, uh, and then do some work drawing all of our reflections to a, a kind of a close and a summary, um, and doing what we can to sort of um, move forward from this experience, this brief experience, thinking about reflecting on the confessions, and see how different ways in which we might be able to kind of translate that into concrete uh, and practical um, actions and attitudes and um, activities now uh, for us. Right? Um, so that's our plan sort of for the two nights. Um, and I'll begin by uh, giving us a, a brief introduction to Augustine. So let's know who this person is who wrote this thing and then to the text, and then we'll get into the, the book, what he wrote, what he said in this book, right? So um, the confessions, in a certain way, give us a lot of the information that we have about Augustine. So as we look through the text, we're going to discover some of these things. Um, but it's helpful to know some about his background. Uh, Augustine grew up in North Africa. Um, and went to school and was trained as a rhetorician. Uh, that sounds maybe foreign or fancy or like a throwback to a bygone era when people were rhetoricians, and in a certain way it is. Um, in Augustine's time, uh, the government of uh, the political structure was monarchical, right? It was the Roman Empire. So if you were lucky enough and skillful enough to be born in the right family and kill all the right people at the right time, then you got to be the emperor, right? Um, so one person, one man had power, but human beings aren't generally comfortable with not having any power or control. People like to control things. That's sort of the way we are in a certain way, and that's not all bad. Um, so the way in which people who are not the emperor can exercise control and power and influence in a monarchical system is through influence, is through persuasion, is through argument. And so rhetoricians were the people who taught uh, those who wanted to engage in the politics and the government of the world, so to speak, in the Roman world. Uh, the rhetoricians taught them and gave them the skills to be able to do that. Uh, and we know from Augustine's sort of uh, story about his career that he was an excellent rhetorician. He started sort of out in the sticks in Thagaste and then step by step moves closer and closer and closer to the seat of power in his day, which was in Milan. The Roman emperor had moved to Milan uh, to be closer to the frontier, fighting the Germanic tribes who were invading the Roman Empire. So Augustine doesn't tell you, well, I was one of the best rhetoricians around. 
He just tells you, well, then I moved to Rome, and then I moved to Milan, and I taught in Milan. And th that, that's a subtle way of saying, my career skyrocketed, uh, and by the time I was in my late 20s, I was at the height of my profession, right? And a kind of modern equivalent, maybe, of the job that Augustine had might have been something like Dean of Harvard Law, right? Uh, the people who teach the people who run the government, right? Something like that. And, you know, just think for a second, how many Supreme Court justices went to Harvard Law? How many uh, recent presidents have gone to Harvard? Uh, and we get some sense of um, there's a, a tremendous influence that the teachers at that institution have over the people who, in fact, exercise power in our society. That gives us some sense of, of Augustine's job and how good he was at it, right? Um, a few other things to know about Augustine. Um, we, and on, on the handout here, right, uh, the church calls him a saint and a doctor. Uh, calling someone a saint doesn't mean that they never did anything wrong. Uh, Augustine is not famous for never having done anything wrong, <laughs> sort of the opposite. Um, and the church doesn't see saints that way. When they started the process for Mother Teresa, uh, you know, back in the early 2000s, she had died, and they started the process for a canonization. And the people in Rome told the investigators, uh, in the, the people who were going to put together the case for her sanctity, they said, don't try to prove that she never did anything wrong. We know that she did. That's not a problem. We just want the facts. Give us the real story. We want to know everything. Um, so the church, when, when it calls someone a saint, is calling someone an example for us. Right? They're holding them up as an example of sanctity, an example of someone who has given their life to God, who has followed God heroically, uh, in a way sort of triumphantly, and can show us how to follow God uh, heroically um, and uh, fruitful. Fruitfully, excuse me. Um, <clears throat> the church also calls Augustine a doctor of the church, one of the original eight doctors of the church. And what that means is the church says not everything Augustine said was true. That's not what it means. When the church calls someone a doctor of the church, it says everyone should read this author. They have important things to say, and you can learn from it. Not everything they say may be 100% correct. Okay, fair enough. But it's worth reading. Sort of like a, a very select reading list, right? 30-some uh, authors on that list. Augustine was among the original eight uh, identified by the church. So the church is telling us Augustine is worth reading. Augustine is worth listening to. Um, and that's a pretty good recommendation uh, to be on that list. Uh, even better than New York Times bestseller, right? <laughs> Um, <clears throat> something else to say, too, um, as a rhetorician, as a, as a person who taught other people how to argue persuasively, um, Augustine, and let's say um, some uh, very well-informed scholars, uh, say like at Notre Dame, for example, would, would identify Augustine as sort of a pugilist or a boxer. Right? He's a really excellent arguer. Uh, and he tends to win the arguments that he has. Um, well, Augustine went around arguing against sort of all different kinds of opponents, sort of on different ends of the spectrum even. So he would argue against the Pelagians, right? The Pelagians say, we do everything ourselves, we earn our salvation. 
And Augustine says, no, 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 that's all wrong. We need God's help and his grace. And you argue against the Gnostics who say, all you need is the secret knowledge. You don't have to do anything. God will do everything. And he'll argue against the Gnostics. Well, of course that's wrong. You have, you, you have to work. You have to engage. You have to cooperate. God is calling us to cooperate with him. So because Augustine was running around sort of putting out different fires against different threats to the church, um, you can pick up different books of Augustine and read them sort of against each other. And he makes really good arguments sort of in different directions sometimes. So that can make it difficult to know what Augustine thinks. Okay? And just to make it all the more easy, at the end of his life, he wrote a work called The Retractions, in which he said, oh, I said these things, but I take it back. I was wrong about that. <laughs> so getting a grip on what Augustine thinks is difficult because you have to read a lot. And you have to read things that look like they tend in opposite directions. And then he's going to take some of those positions back at the end. So that makes it kind of difficult to get your feet on the ground when you're trying to understand what Augustine says. Um, we'll deal with that a little bit. Um, but that's, that's something we should realize. And as Augustine is going through the confessions, he's doing a number of different things. Um, he's telling us about his life. He's trying to explain the Catholic faith in a way that shows its richness and shows its attractiveness. Um, he's also praying, and we'll come back to that. That's, that's really important. Um, if you ask, who is the audience of this book? Who, you know, who is it addressed to? The answer is, pretty obviously, God. Um, and so we as readers are overhearing this conversation between Augustine and God. So we'll come back to that. Um, Augustine is also combating different heresies. And some of those heresies he embraced, even for like a dozen years. So there's a lot going on in the Confessions. And a lot of different things are all happening sort of in the same passages, in the same text. And part, part of our recognition of Augustine's skill as a wordsmith or a rhetorician is realizing that with a single paragraph, say, or a single chapter, if you will, Augustine is doing maybe four or five or six different things, but when you read it, it sort of just sounds like a guy telling his story. Um, so there's, there's a lot of richness uh, in the text, uh, which I think helps to explain why people are still fascinated by this book that was written more than 1,600 years ago. Uh, dissertations are still written about this text, still argued and debated left, right, and up and down. And we're still captivated by it. Now, because in addition to being erudite and insightful, it's also a really good story. And he tells it really well. And if you have the ability, if you have the skill, the knowledge base, uh, if you engage the Latin text, the original, the way he wrote it, the prose is almost like poetry. So there's a kind of um, lyrical beauty to it which you don't get out of a translation, but you would get if you read the Latin with all the endings matching up with you know, the different cases and various things like that. So it's a really marvelous example of his rhetorical skill. The text itself is a marvelous example of Augustine's rhetorical skill. Um, I have, a, not to take too much time away from Augustine, but I have my own confession to make. Um, not that kind of confession. <laughs> um, I understood that the Confessions was great and wonderful and everyone should read the Confessions and I tried. 
and I couldn't get anything out of it. And I tried again, and I, and I came back. I was older and wiser, and I came back. I had more study, and I came back, and I tried, and I couldn't get anything out of it. It was dull and boring and just made me want to read something else. Um, so I tried five times to start the confessions without a lot of success. Uh, and the thing that really helped me to discover how incredible this book is is actually uh, a series that was put out by the teaching company. Uh, they do lectures uh, by college professors on different topics. Uh, and it was a team taught lecture uh, by two professors named Bill Cook and Ron Hertzman. Cook is a historian, Hertzman is a literature prof. And they did a series on the Confessions of Augustine, which was excellent. It's a 12 hour series, 24 lectures. And uh, it really opened my eyes to how magnificent the Confessions are. And after I listened to that series, I was able to come back to the, the text of the Confessions itself. And at this point, I think the Confessions is maybe the best book I have ever read as a literary composition, uh, as a purveyor of wisdom. It's, it's maybe the best book I've ever read, ever. Uh, that's, that's where I am now, but not where I started. Uh, and in a way, that's, that kind of gives us some insight into Augustine the Confessions, too. Where he starts is not where he ends, so to speak. Right? All right. Augustine is praying. But the way he prays when he writes the Confessions is sort of a strange way of praying. He starts with that text that we use for our prayer. Um, and he's addressing God. And he's, he's quoting the scripture, as a matter of fact. And if you look in your text, you may see he's quoting the Psalms a lot there in that first paragraph that we prayed together. He's quoting the scripture, and then he's speaking to God. Man is one of your creatures, Lord. He bears about in the mark of death. He's, since he's part of your creation, was to praise you. He's talking to God. If you were to look uh, at the end of the confessions, uh, again, he's speaking to God. And as he goes through, he's sort of telling God his story, so to speak, and then doing some reflecting on the side, so if you will. But um, Augustine, when he writes the Confessions, is obviously and intentionally praying in such a way that the reader overhears his prayer to God. Right? And at different points in the text, he'll say, Lord, I say this not because you don't know, but so that others may be led to you, or something like that. You know, rough sort of paraphrase. So he's, of course, aware of the, the overhearing audience who we are. And he's writing this for us, but it's his prayer to God. And in a certain sense, we can get a lot out of that. Um, part of it, I think, is that Augustine wants to encourage us and invite us to make the journey of conversion, which he has made sort of in our own lives. Not that we all have the same details, same struggles, or same uh, hang-ups maybe that Augustine had in his conversion process, an ongoing conversion process, but he wants to invite us to do the things that he has done. Right? If you read this text, you end up praising God a fair amount, because when you read it, you say the prayer that he's saying, and he's, he's getting you to praise God when you read the text. Isn't that lovely? It's a, it's a rhetorical device to kind of 
draw you in to the activity he wants you to, to do, to pray, even more than to read. That, just a small example, maybe, of some of that rhetorical skill. Right? So the Confessions is a prayer. It's overheard. Uh, and as he's sort of sharing his prayer life with us, as he's talking about his uh, experience of his history right, and his conversion process, he's giving us this interior view of himself, which maybe we recognize as a kind of spiritual autobiography, um, and we're kind of familiar with that format of autobiography, of, of sharing, you know, sort of um, journaling in a certain way, perhaps, reflecting in that way, the interior view of the, the author. In Augustine's time, this was radical. No one wrote this way. No one wrote their own story. You told someone else's story. Right? Homer didn't talk about himself. He talked about Odysseus. Right? Um, and that's a theme we'll get to later in, in terms of the way Augustine is engaging epic literature and his culture. Uh, there's a lot of interesting points there. Um, <clears throat> so Augustine is giving us this interior view, and again, I think, trying to help people in his day and age understand their own conversion journeys, think about the process of coming to God, and all the different implications of that. It's not just my moral life. It's not just my communal life, who my friends are. It's not just my intellectual life, uh, what I think and what I read and what I find interesting and all those things. It's all of those things and more besides. Uh, and he wants to kind of give us this total picture of what it's like to follow God uh, and to live in the Catholic Church. You know, when he writes this, he's a bishop. Uh, and he's a bishop of a place where he, he didn't grow up and he wasn't that well known. So another element of the Confessions is a kind of introduction uh, that Augustine is making of himself to the world and maybe especially to the people who have asked him to be their bishop. Right? And the way he tells this story uh, with, let's say, famously colorful detail about his checkered past, <laughs> you can almost hear him sort of chuckling to himself, well, you don't know what you got yourself into, <laughs> um, as he tells his own story. Um, and there's, another, there's yet another element of that as well. In his time in North Africa, there was a group, um, we, we would, as Catholics, we would call them heretical group. They had broken off from the church's teaching, way of understanding Christian life and doctrine. And they're called the Donatists. Uh, and they were convinced that the only people who could belong to the church were people who were perfect, who never sinned. Right? And in fact, the Donatists, they kind of liked Augustine because he was brilliant and he was so articulate and wonderful. And here in the Confessions, Augustine is saying, oh yeah? Try this story out. See how perfect you find me now. <laughs> now and um, if you know a lot about Augustine and his history of the Donatists, there are issues to, to work through there. Um, but for the sake of looking at Confessions, we should realize that part of what's going on is Augustine is introducing himself and also already in the way that he's telling his story and the details that he brings out, he's answering different charges, he's trying to respond to different Christian groups in his area uh, of the world in his time uh, and help people not get sidetracked 
towards the Donatists or the Manichees or the Gnostics or any of these other groups and find their way to the fullness of truth in the Catholic Church. Uh, that's Augustine the Bishop trying to lead people to, to the great treasure that he's found. Uh, and he's found God in the Catholic Church, in the Bible, uh, and it's given him peace. We're, we're made for him, our hearts are restless till so they rest in thee. And as we go through, you know, we'll see uh, other famous prayers, say, in Book 10 and at the end of Book 13. He'll say, I found it. I found peace. I know where it is. It's with the Lord in the church. So that's the journey he's taking us on. Um, we should also say, and, and here on your, um, on your handout, there's a couple of points that, that move in this direction. Um, there's, a, there's an unattributed quotation that comes from the 19th century, which says, all of theology is footnotes to Augustine. And it gets repeated 130, 40 years after it was said, because there's enough truth in that to kind of make it stand up. Um, that Augustine has a tremendous influence on Christian thinking. And if you think, just for a minute, uh, Lutherans claim that Augustine is a Lutheran. Calvinists claim that Augustine is a Calvinist. Catholics claim that Augustine is a Catholic. Right, see, if you get Augustine in your corner, you're doing really well, right? Even better than Aladdin's genie. You know? <laughs> Even more power than that, maybe. So uh, Augustine is, is a historic genius, a kind of flashpoint, um, an obvious treasure and resource that everyone wants to claim, everyone wants to say, we are reflecting Augustine accurately and well. Um, and we're going to see, like, if you look past Augustine into other classics in the Western tradition after him, you're going to see um, when Aquinas wrote the Summa Theologiae, uh, the most quoted source in the Summa Theologiae of Aquinas is the scriptures by far. Maybe like 60-70% of the quotations are from the Bible. That's a little surprising maybe. The, the second biggest group is the Fathers. Right? Aristotle comes in third after those two. Right? Um, and among the fathers, the vast majority of those quotations are from Augustine. Right? And there are some famous places and ways in which Aquinas disagrees with Augustine, but when he does so, it's always sort of gingerly, right? because he knows when you disagree with Augustine, you have to tread carefully. Right? Uh, but by and large, uh, he goes with Augustine. When Augustine and Jerome disagree, almost invariably, Aquinas goes with Augustine. He's a very Augustinian thinker, as a matter of fact. Uh, and there are books out to that effect, Aquinas the Augustinian. Um, Dante quotes uh, Augustine, and um, if you know Dante well, uh, Inferno V is a kind of incredible uh, tribute to Augustine's confessions in the world of the Inferno, the inverted and twisted world of the Inferno. Uh, there's, there's a kind of beauty there. Um, but Maybe in another way, in a literary way, uh, when we look at the confessions and the way in which I'm going to suggest to you that Augustine sort of tries to redefine epic literature with the confessions, where before the poet tells the story of another right, and emphasizes their virtue, Augustine tells his own story and emphasizes God's role. God is actually the hero of the confessions, and I'd argue for you as well, 
God's the hero of the Divine Comedy of Dante as well. Right? So Dante offers this incredible monument of epic poetry and epic literature. And the structure of it mirrors the confessions. Augustine is the one who broke that ground, and Dante is following his example in many ways. Um, other um, people who we respect uh, in, in some ways, or um, understand at least to have tremendous influence also, um, take a lot from Augustine. Pope Benedict, Pope Emeritus Benedict, uh, is an Augustinian theologian, and, and he, as a young student, was transfixed by the confessions of Augustine, changed his life, uh, spoke to him both doctrinally and personally, um, and shaped his thought uh, to the present day. Uh, so that's a famous example. On the sheet, you can see also others uh, imitate Augustine, take their cue from Augustine, even if they're going to disagree with him radically. For example, um, Rousseau wrote, writes his own confessions, not to praise God, uh, but that's enough on Rousseau probably for tonight. All right. So with those ideas and thoughts about um, Augustine and about the confessions, we should begin to look into the text uh, and see the things that Augustine is telling us, the themes that he's raising for us, um, and try to learn from him. Um, in the first book, uh, Augustine is praying at the beginning, the first five sections. We read the first paragraph. The first five sections uh, are actually one sort of continuous prayer. Um, and I don't know how many have read the Confessions in, in advance of this two-part series or have read the Confessions at some point in their lives. Uh, does anyone, can we raise hands for that? How many have read the Confessions before or started the Confessions before, read this part of the Confessions before? Right? Okay, so some. That's fine. That's fine. And if you haven't, then I hope that these talks encourage you to do that, to sort of take the plunge, even if you do it sort of holding the hand of someone like Hertzman and Cook or Benedict Rochelle wrote an introduction to Augustine, and there's a, a nice little, uh, this is a good series. A very short introduction to Augustine, right? Sort of like... Almost a coaster <laughs> um, by an excellent scholar, Henry Chadwick. Uh, a lot of secondary literature to kind of get us started with Augustine. Um, Augustine's praying. We read that first paragraph. Um, but I don't know if you normally pray this way, if you normally sort of have this many questions when you pray or not. But this gives us a little bit of insight into Augustine and the kind of man that he is and the way he approaches God. So. He comes to this sort of this lovely landing place of God has made us for, our, for himself and we'll find peace when we rest in him. And then he goes on, Grant me, Lord, to know and understand whether a man is first to pray to you for help or to praise you, or whether he must know you before he can call you to his aid. If he does not know you, how can he pray to you? For he may call for some other help, mistaking it for yours, or are men to pray to you and learn to know you through their prayers. You can imagine sort of like God sitting on his throne saying like, would you just pray? <laughs> just talk to me. Right? But this is Augustine. He's a very curious mind, Augustine. He wants to know. and He's hungry. He's thirsty for knowledge. Right? And we'll see that as we go through confessions. And 
in a certain way, his prayer is very characteristic of him, which I think is fair and good. You know, our prayer should reflect us in a certain way you know, and be a kind of engagement of us with the Lord. So uh, Augustine's way of praying is distinctive and to some off-putting. Some people don't like so much thinking in their prayer, uh, but certainly Augustine does, and he can't, he can't live any other way. He's the kind of guy who's always thinking, now why is that, and how does that work, and what if, what if it was this and the other way, and how, what if we did it the other way around, and how would that work, and that's how, that's how his mind works, and that's how he engages. It's, it is his heart, and, and we'll see him pouring his heart out for us, but not apart from his mind. Uh, and Augustine wants to deliver that message to us, um, it's heart and mind together. In fact, it's all of us uh, for our whole lives, our whole existence, given to God. That's conversion. That's, that's the goal. That's the aim. So he's praying, uh, giving us this sort of entree, helping us to see, in a certain sense, where he is at the time of the writing. Right? He knows that God is where peace is found when he's writing. When he's a baby, starting in section 6, he didn't know that yet. Shockingly. <laughs> uh, and he just, you know, the day I was born, I don't remember that, you know, sort of like giving us this information, you know, helping us understand. Um, he's thinking about his early life. He's thinking about um, human beings and in some sense sort of the human condition and what we're all working with and what we're dealing with and um, what we have in a, certain, in a certain sense to overcome in our journey to God. Uh, and one of those early messages is, we're kind of focused on ourselves. And if we're going to come to God, we have to let that go over time. Um, Augustine talks about uh, his boyhood and his early education um, a fair amount. That, that's most of book one is about that, uh, beginning in section eight. Um, and he tells a story about how his parents tried to give him every advantage. They sent him to the best schools, you know, as a, as a sort of um, lower class family, so to speak, sort of on the outskirts of the empire, they try to prepare their son for greatness, right? Um, and they do that the best way they know how. But Augustine, as he's writing, is telling us that the best education, the best schools to get the best position and the most power and the most money and influence in the Roman Empire wasn't actually a great preparation for being happy. They did their best, but they sort of missed the mark. Um, and Augustine gives us lots of interesting details that we can't explore fully. It's just a question of our time. Um, but he does some really fascinating things here in this uh, first book of the Confessions. Um, he'll tell us, for example, uh, well, he makes this sort of reference, this sort of oblique reference to the Aeneid. You may have heard of the wanderings of some hero called Aeneas, which for us, you know, maybe is fair. You know, we might have heard of the Aeneid, and, or, or maybe not. In Augustine's time, every child, every boy in school read the Aeneid. It was the sum of all wisdom, you know, sort of like, um, you know, sad to say, sort of like, sometimes, you know, American men think the Godfather is the sum of all wisdom. Yeah. That was the Aeneid, right? <laughs> For late antique people. They learned Latin by reading the Aeneid. They learned history. They learned culture. They learned philosophy. They learned morals. They learned everything from the Aeneid. It was the textbook for school, full stop. 
everybody was well familiar with this text. So he's sort of, he's giving you this sort of reference, which is meant to kind of prick your attention. So like, well, of course we know that. And I think what Augustine is trying to do with the Confessions, and he starts it here in Book 1, is to say, you know, Aeneas made this journey from Troy through North Africa to Rome to found Rome to fulfill his destiny and, and become, you know, the founder of Rome, the father of this great nation, as, as told by Virgil. And Augustine is trying to tell us, maybe in a way similar to a later work, City of God, Augustine's trying to tell us the real journey, the real epic, the real drama of life is not Rome. The real drama is loving God. It's following him, it, the city of God, if you will. That, that's our true destiny. That's our true happiness. Not civic virtue and military political power. That's empty. Doesn't go very far. Doesn't help you. Doesn't make you happy. Finding God, that makes you happy. And the education you received was aimed at worldly power, worldly influence. And he'll say, it was kind of a bad education. Oh, sure, he learned skills. And he's using those skills to tell us that that was a bad education. Um, but he's already aiming us towards his objective, his goal, and presenting himself as the Christian Aeneas, the true hero and the true model of what late antique people should aim for. Right? So, um, Augustine is also telling us things like... Um, Beautiful words, he was taught, this, he was learning rhetoric, and beautiful words can't mask, can't make bad actions good. Just because you describe it beautifully doesn't change bad actions into good ones. Uh, the, the appearance of beautiful and entrancing language is only an appearance, and we shouldn't put our treasure and our trust simply in beautiful language like uh, rhetoricians might or people in his day who wanted to exercise power might focus on just give me this linguistic tool that will enable me to accomplish my goals that's not really where peace is found so um, in book two and we are going to move quickly so uh, I apologize for that uh, but I hope it's helpful to, to to get through the text in, in some fashion, if not in a detailed way. In book two, Augustine begins to tell us about his struggle with lust. Uh, and this is a, uh, a deep uh, sin and problem that he wrestles with throughout his life, uh, even after he converts him. And we'll see that. And we get into book 10, probably next week we get into book 10. We'll see, even after he's a bishop, it doesn't mean he stops struggling against temptation, right? Which is, in a certain sense, uh, a great encouragement for people who don't magically have no temptation anymore. <laughs> uh, to know that Augustine the bishop, Augustine the converted man, is still struggling with temptation, I hope, is an is a encouragement. Uh, you know, I, I certainly take it that way. So, in book two, he begins to tell us about when he came to adolescence, lust uh, invaded his life and began to dominate him in a certain way. Uh, and then he moves into a, a, an episode very famous uh, about the pear theft. And he talks about how he and his friends took these pears and in a certain sense sort of for the joy of stealing it, right? Um, let's say at the beginning, book two, beginning of section six, 
And maybe this is the point to, to talk about the different numeration of the text. Augustine divided the confessions into books and sections. But some of the sections have one paragraph and some have more than one paragraph. So later on, um, editors numbered the paragraphs. So when you have references to the confessions, you'll have a Roman numeral, which is the book number. And then the first Arabic numeral is to the section number that Augustine divided the text into. And the third number is the sequential paragraph number. So Confessions 111 is the very first paragraph of the whole work. right? But for example, very famous prayers in Confessions 1027, section 27. But it's paragraph 43. So 102743 is the 43rd paragraph in book 10, section 27, something like that. So if you're looking at a reference or if you're looking at your book and you're trying to figure out where is he talking about, I'm giving you references to, the, to Augustine's divisions of the text. Right? It's book two, section six. He's talking about the pair theft. If the crime of theft which I committed that night as a boy of 16 were a living thing, I could speak to it and ask it and ask what it was that to my shame I loved in it. I had no beauty because it, or let's say, I had no beauty because it was a robbery. It is true that the pears which we stole had beauty because they were created by you, the good God, who are the most beautiful of all beings and the creator of all things, the supreme good and my own true good. But it was not the pears that my unhappy soul desired. I had plenty of my own, better than those, and I only picked them so that I might steal. For no sooner had I picked them than I threw them away and tasted nothing in them but my own sin which I relished and enjoyed. In any part of one of those pears, if any part of one of those pears passed my lips, it was the sin that gave it flavor. Right? So he's talking about his experience of sin, his internal experience of sin. And this twisted, warped way of relating to the, the world, which God made good and beautiful, but which he made into his own... Um, let's say, uh, contrary, maybe, or aberrant pleasure, the pleasure of stealing, right? Um, and this initiates us into a, a question that burns for Augustine, that he deals with almost constantly in his writings, the problem of evil. How do you explain evil? How do you give some kind of account of the way in which people do things that are wrong, that they know are wrong. What is it? What's attractive about evil? He's, he's focused on that question. In the Confessions, he's, he's still thinking about that sort of constantly and doesn't come, at, let's say, to a definitive answer. He's still wrestling. And I think even throughout his life, Augustine never feels like he's sort of finished thinking about the problem of evil. Right? And maybe in part because he was so deeply immersed in sin for decades, and maybe till he was about 30, um, lived a life in a certain sense defined by his sin, he never could escape from the memory of those patterns, from, from the destructiveness of those patterns, and, and he was concerned about that. Right? He didn't want anyone to fall into that trap, because it is a trap. It's a, it's a lie. It's a false promise of happiness and of beauty, right? Sin, and, and we'll, we'll see, this, this becomes really poignant in book eight. Sin looks like freedom, but really it's slavery. 
That's not something he invented. He got that from Paul, right? And maybe Paul got it from Christ, and Christ is crystallizing that from Israel's experience, right? But Augustine is thinking about, is trying to understand what evil is and trying to work through his own experience of it, right? Which, and I don't think it's, it's simply a matter of sort of trying to be his own psychologist. He understands that everybody struggles with sin. Everybody faces these problems. And Augustine, the rhetorician, and the bishop, that's important. Augustine writes this as a bishop, as a pastor, as a person responsible for the spiritual welfare of thousands of people. And he's writing this to help people escape, to help people understand, to help people see the truth about sin, its lie, its way of distorting, distracting, and uh, maybe destroying us in a certain sense. And he wants to unmask that lie and lead us to the truth. So he tells us about the pair theft. Uh, he tells us about uh, he and his friends, and, and that's another message here too. He had friends who thought this was pretty great. Uh, and as we go through, part of his conversion process is realizing that he was with a group of people that were not helping him find true happiness. But eventually he finds another group of people that, that will help him. Right? And, and that's an important part. Our, our social situation is an important part of our life and something that we need to consider when we think about our own conversion and our journey to God. Who do we spend time with? Who, who do we share ourselves with? Those, those questions. Um, so, book three has uh, the line that every undergraduate loves to read at the beginning, uh, very beginning of book three. He's talking about his journey. He's leaving his hometown. He's going sort of to the big city, so to speak, in North Africa and Carthage. Um, he's advancing in school. Um, he says, right at the beginning of book three, I went to Carthage, Carthage, where I found myself in the midst of a hissing cauldron of lust. Right? And he sort of artfully describes that, but in a way to show that the appearance of beauty that lust offers us is a lie, is a false appearance. It's not true beauty, right? And in fact, when we pursue lust, what we're really looking for is intimacy. What we're really looking for is love, is connection. We're, we're thirsty for it, and we, we can't get enough of it. And we think we found it sort of in this shallow pool, almost a mirage of lust, right? And that's how, he, that's how he's describing it here. You know, he begins with this sort of uh, saucy line in a certain way. Um, but immediately, he's trying to redirect our attention. He's got our attention, now he wants to redirect it to where we can find true love, true intimacy, true connection. Right? So he's telling us this about his experience as a late fourth century boy in North Africa and Roman culture. Right? But we who encounter the assaults of lust in our time in different ways might find something helpful in Augustine's diagnosis of what lust is offering and why it doesn't actually satisfy us and what we can do to get what we want, really, which is love and intimacy and relationship, uh, acceptance, all those things. Um, 
We need love, and God is offering it. We need true friendship, and lust is not true friendship. It's, it's a sham. So, Augustine tells us in a couple of pages about how when he went to Carthage, his adolescent lust problem didn't get better, it got worse. Um, but something amazing happens to him, um, starting in section 4, he talks about reading Cicero's Hortensius, um, which unfortunately, we don't have a copy of the Hortensius from Cicero. Um, so, but this is the thing he read. Uh, he's 18 years old, he comes to the big city, he's advancing his education, right? And he reads Cicero's Hortensius. And he says here, this is in section four. For me, this is about four or five lines down from the start of section four in book three. The title of the book is Hortensius, and it recommends the reader to study philosophy. It altered my outlook on life. It changed my prayers to you, O Lord, and provided me with new hopes and aspirations. All my empty dreams suddenly lost their charm, and my heart began to throb with a bewildering passion for the wisdom of eternal truth. So Augustine catches this fire of the longing for eternal truth from Cicero, not a Christian, right? uh, a philosopher, a Roman philosopher. Right? And Augustine will tell you that in section 5, he, he, he's resolved to find truth, and he looks to the scriptures, to the Bible first. And what he finds is that he can't get anything out of the Bible. Why? Because from his training as a rhetorician, he reads the Bible and he says, this is so dull. The rhetoric here, the word, uh, the composition, the tools, the imagery, all the, the elements of language are so simple and plain. How can any truth be found in such a humble text? So he turns other places to find truth. Right? And he ends up, he, he tells us, that he turns to the Manichees, right? And the Manichees were, uh, from a Catholic perspective, a kind of heretical, break-off, divergent group uh, who had a, a dualistic theory about God. You know, there's a bad God for the material world. Old Testament is the bad God, made all that material stuff. And there's a good God for the spiritual world, New Testament. So the, the Bible for them is actually sort of split, right? It's the story of the bad God and the story of the good God. And there's a bad principle and there's a good principle. This is also in part an answer to the problem of evil. How do you explain evil? Well, it's the bad principle. Right? Sort of, that's, you know, that's the dark one or something like that, right? And, and good comes from spirit, from even not from body. Body's bad. So Manichaeanism was sort of intellectually acceptable to elites in the late antique time, right? So if you're going to have Christian faith of some kind, right, at least, you know, have the good sense to go with the, the cool, suave Manichaeanism. You know, don't get lost in that muddy Old Testament. Boy, that's trouble down there for sure, right? Let's stay with the spirit, right? Also follows uh, the, the trajectory of Neoplatonism, and right? sort of philosophical school as well, right? And we'll come to that, especially in Book 7, but... Um, as we're kind of winding down to the end of our time together, Augustine has this initial conversion moment to truth from Hortensius. He looks to the Bible, but he can't find truth there because the presentation is too simple for him. 
and he can't see the truth in this simple presentation. So he turns to sort of the cool, suave Christian option, the Manichees. And uh, he talks about how he gets invested in that group um, and brings in different elements, talking about moral life as well, not just intellectual life, but moral life. Um, and then at the end of book three, you know, just when it seems sort of everything's gone wrong, right? You have this, this boy who's given every opportunity and then he turns to lust and they send him on to, for further study and he gets, the lust gets worse and then he finds truth and he turns to the Bible but he rejects it and he goes to Manichae. It's sort of like, this is a bad story. Why am I reading this story? Um, at the end of book three, we have an account of Monica's dream and it's in a way, uh, you know, first sort of um, appearance of Monica. Um, she has a dream that Augustine's going to come to the church, right? This is a foreshadowing dream of his future conversion, sort of keeping our hopes alive, right? And also introducing this idea that we aren't alone in our conversion process. Um, and Monica becomes the patron saint of the relative, the mother, maybe the grandmother, uh, the sister, you know, it could be uh, various relations, those who pray for other people those who hold out hope for their sons and their daughters and their grandchildren uh, to come to the Lord and to come to the church and find truth and happiness and peace there. Um, so just when we might be ready to kind of give up on this saucy tale uh, of Augustine's departure from uh, the church and from truth, uh, we have this dream uh, of Monica to kind of help us along. Um, because we're so close uh, to the end of our time, uh, we'll break there because we're at the end of book three. Uh, and then we'll come back uh, to finish out the confessions next week and then do some wrap up. Um, I would like to close today's session with uh, Augustine's famous prayer from Confessions 1027. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. I have learned to love you late, beauty at once so ancient and so new. I have learned to love you late. You were within me, and I was in the world outside myself. I searched for you outside myself, and disfigured as I was, I fell on the lovely things of your creation. You were with me, but I was not with you. The beautiful things of this world kept me far from you, and yet, if they had not been in you, they would have had no being at all. You called me, you cried aloud to me, you broke my barrier of deafness. You shone upon me, your radiance enveloped me, you put my blindness to flight. You shed your fragrance about me, I drew breath, and now I gasp for your sweet odor. I tasted you, and now I hunger and thirst for you. You touched me, and I am inflamed with love of your peace. Lord, we pray that Augustine's prayer be our own. Help us to find you. Help us to see you in the midst of the world in which we live and to make the world see by the witness of our lives, by the love we bear one another and the world, that you are truth, you are goodness, you are beauty, ever ancient, ever new, and true happiness and peace is found in you, in your love, in your church. All this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. In the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.
Thank you. That was a great presentation. By the way, I look forward to the second one. Uh, in the, you said that Augustine had a book of retractions, yeah. which I really haven't heard of before. But seeing that, uh, you know, everyone seems to claim his him as their saint. You know, the Calvinists, the the, the, the Lutherans. Did did he ever adequately, in your opinion, uh, answer some of the uh, things that were brought forth, like heresies of of uh, Pelagianism, semi-Pelagianism, and and so forth, because some of the some of the people I run into, the Protestants, they say, oh well, he was a, he was a heretic because he believed this, you know, about Pelagianism or whatever. So, let me say, I I feel comfortable standing with the Church uh, when she calls Augustine, for example, the Doctor of Grace, right? So doctors of the Church get little titles about sort of what they're good at, so to speak. So Catholics say that. The way Augustine explained how God and human beings work somehow together for our salvation, he, that's our explanation is more or less Augustine's explanation, right? So, and in my scholarly opinion, in my academic opinion, I think we have the best arguments and claims that Augustine, in fact, sort of thought the way we say he did. Um, the, when Calvinists and Lutherans and others sort of claim that Augustine supported their position, from what I've seen, um, they're quoting only from one passage, only from one work. They're not taking that sort of broad view. Uh, and in a certain sense, kind of finding words that seem to agree with what they want to say, and then making the claim that Augustine agrees with them without uh, appreciating the context or the, the breadth of his work. So that is a debatable point, of course. Calvinists would, would stand here and say, absolutely not. Augustine is a Calvinist, right? But, but I think uh, weighing the arguments and weighing the, the texts, uh, I, I think we do have a good argument uh, that, he's, that he's Catholic and a better argument that he's Catholic than he's anything else. Um, and um, I don't think that Augustine was a, a heretic uh, one way or another, right? Uh, you know, either a kind of quietist who said we don't need to do anything or a Pelagian who said we do everything. Uh, I, I think um, he's, he's got, he's, he's on that, that balance of God's initiative and God's action and our cooperation with him. And we also do have a presentation on predestination on our website, if anyone, by Dr. Marshner, if anyone wants to look at that. I have water for some questions and wine for others, so I'm, I'm ready no matter what. Did Augustine write in Latin? And if so, um, are there differences in translation? And does it matter like it does with the Bible translations? Sure. Augustine did write in Latin. Uh, in, um, in book one of the Confessions, he talked about the fact that he really had a hard time reading Greek, and he didn't really get a lot out of Greek sources that he read. Um, so there's some, there's some maybe false modesty in that, but, but he's a Latin author, he's a Latin stylist, a Latin rhetorician. Um, there are differences in translation, um, and there are many, many translations of the Confessions. Uh, I'm, I'm reading from one, and I quoted from one that was done in 1961. Um, by a man whose last name is Pine Coffin, which I think is just funny, but um, there, are, there are good translations, and, and Pascal Lamb has one that I recommended uh, from New City Press, uh, a, a recent English translation, which is good. Um, 
but you're going to find a wide variety. Some of them are closer or not as close. And you can imagine if the Latin text is sort of poetic, some translations try to capture that sort of lyricism of the language and lose some of the content, and others focus more on the content and lose some of the lyricism. And generally speaking, uh, when we translate into English especially, it seems like it's a better bet because it's really hard to get sort of the poetry of Latin into English. It's, it's a better bet to kind of go for content. Um, and that's, I think, that's a kind of trend. And the more recent translation is going to go for that. But if you had a Romance language translation, you'd get more of that poetry because it's closer, like Spanish or French or something, it would be closer to the Latin. And so you have more opportunity for the combination of the content and the lyricism as well. Um, do you feel, putting all the scholars, uh, scholastic theories aside, do you feel that the average person has to have a little bit of life under their belt to understand, truly understand him, like a, or mothers to have had children that go out into the world to understand St. Monica? I think, and maybe the experience of Ratzinger is helpful here. Uh, Ratzinger read the Confessions as a young man, as a young student, after the Second World War, uh, who'd lived kind of a sheltered life in a certain way, certainly was not the sort of historic sinner that Augustine was, but was inspired by Augustine's story. And I think people will read the Confessions differently at different points in their life, and with different perspectives, we'll have different takeaways from the text. And I'm convinced Confessions repays repeated reading. Right? So that you can't say, well, I read it when I was 18. I, I finished it that. Confessions is definitely a desert island book that you take because you can read it over and over and over and over and get more and more and more out of it. And, and I think the thing you'll get out of it maybe uh, in retirement age will be different. And, and maybe the appreciation you have of the plight of Monica will be different if you've had tr children who struggled, for example. It'll be different than looking at it from another perspective and sort of appreciating that there is a struggle, that it, that would be difficult, right? Rather than being able to relate to it directly. But I, I think um, one thing that makes the confession so popular uh, and so treasured is that it can speak to you almost no matter what your experience is. Uh, and it can keep speaking to you as your experience expands. Hi. Um, in book one, like around paragraph two, there's a, quest, a question Augustine asks um, our Lord and says, like, which one goes first? Should I know you first before I can call you? Yes. And then it seems there's a trend of thought that goes there that upon calling you, or as I am calling you, I am knowing you. Yes. Do you think, like, agnostics, for example, who are sincere, there, there could be those who are sincere, not brought up, for example, in the faith, right? So they, they don't have the background that we have, but they're trying to look, you know, for the truth. So in a way, is that considered like calling for, you know, for the truth or calling for God? And in so calling, they are knowing him. So do you think like they have an encounter in a way by looking for truth, even, even if they're not conscious? or not aware that it's God they're looking for. Yes. And um, the short answer is yes. Um, and I think Augustine, Augustine is treasured not just by Christians, 
It, and it's used not just in Christian schools. It's used in all manner of institutions, you know, universities and maybe even high schools. Some high schools will, will put confessions in front of kids. Um, because Augustine articulates human questions and human quests, and in a certain way, Augustine is that kid. Augustine wasn't looking for God when he went to Carthage. He was looking for a good time in the big city. Uh, but he found God. And, and I think he wants to talk to people you know, who have a lot of questions, like he does. And he wants to talk to people who are buried in sin, like he was, and tell them, look, there's happiness out there, real happiness, you know, and you can find it in God. So I think, I think Augustine is trying to reach out to a wide variety of people. And the text is used that way. Um, and even by people who don't, who who maybe wouldn't even share Augustine's conclusion, they still understand that Augustine's articulation of the human journey and quest for truth is marvelous and valuable, right? So they, they might try to cut out parts of the text, uh, but even in these early sections, maybe you know they can recognize the quest for truth is is valuable and impressive, and we understand that this is a way in which Augustine the bishop is drawing people into. The, the great treasure he's found and he wants to share. Thank you very much, Dr. Love. We hope you enjoyed this presentation from the Institute of Catholic Culture. If you'd like to learn more about the mission of the Institute and how you may become a part of this important work, please visit our website at www.instituteofcatholicculture.org or call us at 540-635- 7155. And may the glory of Christ Church be evermore manifest upon the earth. St. John the Evangelist, pray for us.